Great morning, great afternoon, great evening, wherever this conversation finds you. I am Travis Gray, and today we are transforming with our guest, Dr. Nick Walker. She is a trans transdisciplinary scholar, author, and futurist whose wide-ranging work explores the edges and intersections of somatic psychology, depth psychology, queer theory, neurodiversity, embodiment, and transformative practice. She is a faculty member at California Institute of Integral Studies, senior Aikido instructor at the Aiki Arts Center in Berkeley, author of Neurodiversity Studies. She also writes speculative fiction, including the urban fantasy webcomic, Weird Luck. I am extremely excited to finally get the opportunity to sit down with a brilliant scholar, somebody really dear to my heart, because almost 10 years ago, when I began this journey of transpersonal psychology, she, Dr. Nick Walker, was one of my very first instructors. I'm so, so tremendously excited for this conversation. How are you? I am very well. It's wonderful to see you. Wonderful to see you. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, I, I've never asked you this question before, and how, how is it that you found yourself in this world of transpersonal psychology? How did your professional journey begin? Ah, wonderful question. My journey in transpersonal psychology started long before I came to the academic world or had uh, heard the phrase transpersonal psychology. So uh, it started with Aikido. It started with me beginning my Aikido training at the age of 12. And uh, that was this amazing eye-opener because, you know, I just went looking for a martial art thinking, oh, learn to fight better. You know, I lived in dangerous, violent neighborhoods and I thought, oh, I'll learn to fight better. But uh, what I found was this deep transformative mindfulness practice. And even though I was 12 and not yet fully able to grasp, I'm still struggling to grasp uh, the full implications of Aikido, the full complexities of the art and its full potentials. I feel like I'm always just starting to get a sense of it. And certainly I didn't have any language to articulate uh, what I was uh, discovering when I was 12. But what I learned very quickly was just the possibility of self-transformation, the possibility that through some sort of dedicated mindful practice, we can change ourselves and fulfill potentials that maybe we had no idea we had. And that that's the, the revelation that's kept me going ever since. And I've just kept exploring the, the possibilities of ever since. Yeah, I, I love that. So I, I I have found that some of the most profound transformative practice are 
are the, the insights and wisdom from them are the subtleties in them and the mm-hmm. subtleties of Aikido in the very little practice that I've had the opportunity to experience through uh, courses at Sophia University. And I did have an opportunity to go to an Aikido dojo a few times here in San Jose. And, and the subtleties of the art is such a beautiful thing. It's like the subtleties of dance. And when you see a transformative dance practice in action, you and, and you can catch those subtleties, the, the profound insights that come up out of out of being attentive to that is, is such a beautiful thing. Yes. And it's 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 endless too. There's no there's no end to the levels of depth and subtlety. There's so many that are, aren't apparent at first. And uh, it's like the more one goes, the more one progresses on the path, the more one discovers, oh, there's this other level that I can just start sensing is there for me to somehow reach into. And it's always, oh, there's another level. There's another level that I sense after this one or deeper than this one or another level of refinement that I'm just getting a hint of. And by the time one gets there, one is starting to become aware of the next level after that. Yes. And and so it, so I, I hear I hear the the thirst for that that next level in your in in your speaking about this. Is is this what inspired the the interest in somatic psychology as well? Is that was that always um, in your relationship with Aikido? Yeah, because I started with Aikido, because I started with this embodied practice mm-hmm. where the transformation starts with the physical actions and the physical action upon the body, that somatic orientation has always been there for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I was, uh, what I started to learn early on from Aikido is this whole concept of uh, attunement and connection, you know, because this is, we're talking about the transpersonal here, going beyond the conventional ego boundaries. And that involves being able to tune in to uh, deeper levels of the self, something larger than the self in the universe, to the world, to one's environment, and to other people also that I think to me, uh, uh, empathy and compassion and human connection are a crucial part of transpersonal psychology. That it's not just about, you know, me, 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 and my potentials, but what are our potentials to connect with each other? And <laughs> so, uh, what I discovered early on in the Aikido practice and have been exploring ever since is this idea, you know, if somebody grabs you, somebody grabs your arm in Aikido practice, the uh, the reflexes are defensive fight, flight, freeze reflexes. Tell us to tense up, whether you're trying to run away or whether you're freezing or whether your impulse is to fight back, there's a tension in the body that activates. And once that happens, what one feels if one tries to feel into the body is one's own tension. And one has to physically relax that tension in order to start feeling what's happening in your partner's body and being able to work with it. What's this person grabbing me is just a a crisis as long as I am tense. 
But if I can relax my body while being grabbed, suddenly this person grabbing me is another human being and I can feel what's happening in their body. And then I have this empathic connection to them and I can use that to move harmoniously with the energy they're giving me. And that of course carries over to so many things to how we relate to the whole world that, uh, and I didn't have a vocabulary for it outside of Aikido. I started learning it on a physical uh, level in terms of how do you deal with the physical grab and, uh, then from there, as I began learning the psychology, eventually it's like, oh, this is psychodynamic psychology. This mm-hmm. is people have psychological defense mechanisms. And because of those, the, their, their personalities so often are just kind of clusters of defense mechanisms and you know, automatic reactions to various things. And how do I, you know, how do I hold my ego together and uh, defend it against incursion? That's all that they feel. And it becomes this very self-absorbed, uh, individualistic and almost n- narcissistic uh, uh, little reality window, the little reality tunnel that people live in. And if people can expand beyond that, that's what we're talking about with transpersonal psychology is expanding beyond you know, ego defenses and uh, the small ego concerns to allow connection and conversation with something much bigger. And so Aikido, because I came at it through Aikido first and only later learned uh, psychological theories that articulated that, uh, it's always been a physical process to me. I've always seen this as those the psychological defense mechanisms, the the being locked into uh, the everyday ego concerns that kind of keep our consciousness smaller, all of that is locked into the body and the physical tensions. What Wilhelm Reich called character armor, mm-hmm. and so being able to uh, become aware of those tensions and relax them becomes. Uh, a transpersonal practice of I'm going to release these tensions, not just because they're uncomfortable, but I'm going to release tensions and relax even in the face of what seems like threat or crisis, because that transforms my relationship to the moment and to what's happening and allows this deeper level of connection and connection to uh, something beyond the ego. So that is uh, uh you know, for me, so much of what the practice is about, and it's this endless mind, mindfulness practice, the endless work of being mindful of deeper levels of tension, deeper levels of reactivity, and how can I open up even more fully? Yeah, yeah, and and such a such a beautiful foundational practice and martial art for a therapist to become a better attuning fork to their clients, to other people, uh, just, just people in general can definitely benefit from this, from this practice, this martial art. But when it specifically comes to transpersonal psychology and the reason for having classes in, in this, in the field of, of counseling and therapy to become a better attuning fork to the, to being mindful of yourself and to the, the tensions and the, the energetic 
the energetic energetic ups and downs of your client of of yourself and your client and in the space with one another in relation to one another is a really beautiful thing and you you touched on some really cool things about um w- william reich uh, and those and those uh, d- defenses uh, i think carl rogers spoke about the fully functioning person and one of the uh, one of the qualities of the fully functioning person was a a lacking of defenses that mm-hmm. those defenses have been diminished uh, through their through their own ego development through their own personal development that 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 person is then is then you know the quality of being fully functioning in the world to be able to fully function in the world is is to be to be rid of some of the defenses that become the obstructions for our interaction with other others, our ability to be interactive with the space and in our, in our inner, inner subjectivity as well. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yes. The, uh, in the, the tensions and the psychological defenses and the automatic, uh, patterns of reactivity have this effect of, uh, limiting our options and so I'm always looking for how we can expand the range of options to me that's central. And that's something that uh, I, you know, having studied with me that I, I uh, contemptuous of behaviorism, but I love, I love humanistic and transpersonal psychology and psychodynamic psychology, you know, and the reason is behaviorism looks at taking a, a limited set of options, replacing them with a different limited set of options. But I always think uh, the proper goal of therapy is for your client to walk out of uh, therapy with more options than they came in with, mm-hmm. more ability to make conscious choices. And it, uh, for those of us who have devoted ourselves to transpersonal practice, for me at least, it's very much an experience uh, in Aikido and in my other transpersonal practices of uh, uh, mastering the art of shape-shifting being able to spontaneously flow and adapt and change one's shape in order to relate harmoniously to the situation at hand. And so uh, uh, our our habitual tensions and preconceptions and such become a limitation on our capacity to do that. And I do love overcoming limitations. I love what you're saying about the the opening of more options and 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 yes, uh, uh, via your coursework, via your training, uh, what I've learned from you, I have become uh, pretty contentious uh, <laughs> about behaviorism myself, and um, and and from a different angle. So I've uh, or from a, a slightly different angle. So I would say that you, you know your angle is the advocacy of autism and uh, the the uh, autism autistic people, and the the it, it is interesting that um, that I resonated so strongly with your ideas around neurodiversity because of being a child of a deaf adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my mother being deaf, my grandmother, grandfather being deaf. So I have grown up. I've been raised in such a way that I've been in between these worlds. I've not been quite a hearing person, not quite a deaf person, uh, but somewhere in between and having to, um, in some ways, shape shift between both and and feeling yes. like that, that there's been such a blessing in that in my life to give me a lot of options in the 
in in the ways that I can communicate with others, in in the in the forms of how I can relate to others, um, is is a really beautiful thing. But this this behaviorism ha- has been a, a, an interesting topic because over the years I will I will uh, come across these young aspiring therapists and they are finding their first job and uh, for some reason there is always an opening in applied behavioral analysis mm-hmm. it's always <laughs> they're always hiring I, I don't know when they ever fill all of these uh, ABA jobs but mm-hmm. they they have um the these trainings and and I and I try to be mindful when I'm when I'm introducing this uh, concept of neurodiversity to somebody that is working with autism, working with individuals with autism, and finding that they are you know, that th- this is the only way that they know how to work and try to th- their their heart is in the right place. Their heart is um, to be of service. They're 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 just they're they only know what they know, and it is. It is interesting when I when I come across that I try to I try to be mindful I try to be uh, conscious and compassionate uh, to maybe the uh, the lack of knowing uh, another way to approach uh, these things to uh, appro- approach that set of options that is being provided to uh, to people and being conditioned into into others which is. Um, which is an an unfortunate paradigm uh, dynamic that is not serving the best interests of everyone involved, um, which is just just really interesting that that is sort of lost on people. Um, But I always am encouraging them to uh, look at your work at neuroqueer.com, previously neurocosmopolitanism.com, now neuroqueer.com, to look at your articles on neurodiversity um, what what do you what would you encourage uh, for these people that are going into applied behavioral analysis? I think that they're getting some really good tools, um, some like maybe initial tools to help them in uh, in the grander journey of their of their therapeutic career. But I would I would like them to not be um, so fooled by maybe a a paradigm that is not serving everyone involved, right? Yes, I would encourage them. The problem is they're harming, they're harming the clients, they're harming children, and they think that they're helping and they're not. And at this point, what we have is, uh, you know, a, a couple of generations of autistic people who were subjected to ABA in childhood, who've grown up to say, this traumatized me horribly. This was, this this was extremely traumatic for me and uh, it damaged me in ways that I'm still coming to terms with. And that's, that information is out there, but uh, uh, it's not taught. Somehow people, you know, psychology students are taught about autistic people without being uh, given actual autistic people to listen to without being exposed to the work of autistic people and what autistic people have to say about their own experience. And I mean, it's a little outrageous because imagine, you know, if you had a, you know, a class uh, on, um, you know, you had a class on like 
gender or queer studies or something and all you got was the voices of like straight cisgender men talking uh, talking about uh queer people as the other or talking about women as the other you know imagine if you went to like uh, an african-american studies course and everything was taught by uh taught by white people and all of the readings were by white people you'd recognize that something's wrong but that same recognition doesn't happen yet around autistic people because they're so dehumanized in the discourse and psychology and they're so dehumanized in in uh within the dominant culture so uh uh psychology students are not trained to listen to autistic people or made aware of their voices, except like, you know, Temple Grandin, who's like a dinosaur, who's, you know, this, you know, uh, ancient person who doesn't really hang out with other autistic people and is, uh, to, to anyone who can read bodies, is like carrying a huge amount of trauma for how, from how she was treated in childhood. And has really made her whole career of telling non-autistic people what they want to hear like there's these generations, you know, multiple generations of autistic people and, you know, autistic scholars uh, who are writing in the field and writing extensive, you know, critiques of ABA and how it traumatizes people. And it, it's explainable to a psychology student, to a, 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 a bright psychology student, you know, you can explain uh in the same way you can explain the harm done by like gay conversion therapy. Uh, there's uh, in the, because what's happening is, uh, you know, autistic people have their own unique uh, sensory and perceptual and cognitive experience and their own developmental instincts for working with that. And uh, ABA, the goal is this, uh, imposition of a performance of being non-autistic. It's this imposed performance of societal standards of normality. And it's being imposed at the expense of the child's natural adaptation strategies and coping strategies and integration strategies. They're not being given space to integrate and they're being traumatized and it's not always visible to parents. Uh, of the of the kids, it's not always visible uh, to the well-meaning students who become practitioners of it because they're lied to and told, you know, your child has, uh, you know, has no uh, no potential for healthy development unless they're taught in this way. And then what happens is there's this little fraud that goes on where. The uh, if the child does anything, you know, starts to do something for themselves they couldn't do before, the ABA takes credit for it. And if the child is having problems and falling apart, ABA is like, oh, they need more ABA. Mm-hmm. But it's actually, I find the opposite, that children who are being subjected to ABA and robbed of their coping strategies and their integration time and their free play time, they're more likely, they have more meltdowns and more overwhelm. And, and that's pointed to as evidence they need more ABA, but when they need is no ABA. 
And children who are not given ABA still develop, they learn, and the learning looks different. The trajectory is different from other kids, but they're learning and developing. And I mean, the autistic people I know who've really uh, been able to thrive in adulthood, like myself, were never subjected to ABA. And I see worse, worse outcomes and more trauma in adulthood in autistics, people who were subjected to ABA as, as children. Uh, and who will tell you, you know, ABA, like it looked to my parents like I wasn't being harmed, but in the long run, I was robbed of my coping strategies and eventually fell apart completely. And uh, so that, uh, that's a story I just hear from autistic people over and over who are subjected to ABA. And it's obvious when you think about what's actually being done to the child that they're being robbed of their sense of bodily autonomy, of their natural coping strategies, of the integration time they need. Uh, and their internal experience is not being attended to. And what's shocking to me oft, uh, so often when I hear ABA practitioners speak uh, and when I see what they write, when I see them in, in debates with autistic people is the utter contempt that uh, longtime ABA practitioners have for autistic people mm -hmm. because they've been taught these people are only capable of being real humans to the extent that we condition them to be. And they end up uh, with this extreme contempt uh, that where you know a person who feels contempt for a, a child should not be allowed to work with that child mm -hmm. but uh i think that they don't start out that way but there's this process of self-justification once an aba once someone has been trained in aba and they've started practicing it and harming children it gets harder and harder for them to pull out of that because they have to face the fact that they have been harming children and people don't want to face that. And so they become very good at justifying it to themselves and very resistant to uh, looking at what they're really doing uh, from the perspective of the people who've been harmed by it. So uh, one of the reasons that you see, you know, you know, you young undergraduate psych students get pulled in, you know, via their first job is in ABA is because the ABA industry actively seeks to recruit mm -hmm. impressionable young psychology students who don't know a lot of psychology yet. Because once you've learned psychodynamic psychology and humanistic psychology, once you have a sense of how people actually work, you you won't fall for ABA's ideology anymore. It becomes obvious, you know, anyone who's been trained in like uh, some basic psychodynamic psychology and basic, you know, like understands, you know, basic like play therapy and understands Winnicott and understands, you know, uh, uh, how learning happens through uh, imitation and play in children, understands, uh, the regulation of the central nervous system and how people, uh, how children need integration time for self-regulation. Once a person understands psychology to that extent, um, they're going to take a look at ABA and be like, this is all wrong. Mm -hmm. This has got to be harmful. There's no way this can do any good. Uh, 
So they have to recruit students who don't understand that yet. And once the students are recruited into it, they can learn more psychology, but they'll keep finding ways to justify to themselves what they've already started doing. And so that uh, that makes it a very uh, uh, delicate conversation. But I have seen students recover from it too. I have had undergraduate students who were working as ABA practitioners and after they you know, took a, a course with me on neurodiversity, uh, they uh, switched to a, a less harmful profession. So. Yeah. You know, people people can see it, but they often have to be guided to it very gently because, again, it does involve coming to terms with this idea that, oh wow, I have been doing something harmful. I have, uh, and a, the inclination usually that people have when confronted with that is to uh, to double down and defend themselves and defend the defend the ego and defend their self concept rather than make a change. Yeah. And then they, they end up defending the whole, the whole framework of ABA itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Such an effective conditioning program to be uh, effectively conditioning themselves (laughs) into Mm -hmm. thinking that this is the only right way. And to be, I, 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 as you're, you're articulating this so well, I'm, I'm really understanding that uh, people uh, autistic people are going through something that is conditioning their their natural coping strategies into a uh, that is my 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 own internal system for coping with the reality of of my world is now wrong, mm-hmm. and so now if I if I have this internal feeling of wrongness that is so disintegrating of all of my all of all aspects of my life becomes so yes. disintegrated and that that is that is that's a scary thing and 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 i man i i i i i guess i've even been um when when i've spoken to somebody that is uh, an aba practitioner uh, that maybe they've been doing this a couple of years. I think I've even been um, kind of uh, uh, fooled by their uh, advocacy for the ABA, ABA uh, stuff. Not, not not as far as that I would. I I, I, I every time I, I direct them to uh, your work with uh, neurodiversity and your articles uh, on on your website. But um, but they they will say, well, we, you know, we're 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 doing we're doing good things. We're helping we're helping in 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 so and so ways. And uh, and I'm like, oh, okay, well, maybe maybe there there's something there, but maybe I just haven't um, found uh, the the right articulation to to help somebody. And and it is something that needs to be gently done. I have found mm-hmm. that I will bring I will bring up. Well, there, there's a really uh, a, a very different way to approach this. And, uh, and, and I've, I, and I have felt like, um, maybe this person no longer wishes to speak with me. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and, um, and, uh, it, it does, it reminds me of a variety of things. It reminds me of in, uh, in, in deaf culture, they, they sort of are conditioning in, in some areas they can be conditioning out the culture of American sign language, the language yes. and the culture of of that dynamic they can be they can be kind of washing it out 
by by being taught by people that are not deaf people and by by uh, j- just having this uh audism this this uh this um uh, th- this privilege of being a person, a hearing person, and this privilege is the the very thing that is conditioning them to thinking that they're doing the right thing by helping somebody else. Maybe their heart is in the right place, but then their mind is doing very much the opposite of what maybe their heart intends on doing, which is helping somebody be able to be fully functioning in their lives with their, with their own natural coping strategies and the, you know, a, a, a wealth of options in the ways of, uh, of moving through the world. So it is, it is really concerning. Yeah. And I think um, that privilege you talked about, there's a, a, a quote that I uh, I quote uh, uh, a lot um, in these contexts, especially when I'm training therapists, is a quote from Carl Deutsch, who was a, uh, a mid 20th century political scientist. And the quote is, power is the ability not to have to learn. And I think that's a that's a, a big one that there's these unequal power relationships. And so people can keep convincing themselves of their own benevolence because they don't have to learn what the people on the other side of the power dynamic are experiencing. And so that happens around that autism, you know, and the uh, this paternalistic attitude toward deaf people. It happens in ABA's paternalistic attitude towards autistic people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it happens in, you know, in very different situations like colonialism, you know, mm-hmm. in the attitude of a colonizing culture towards a colonized culture, you know, uh, we're bringing civilization to the savages, you know, rather than recognizing, oh, we're coming in and invading these people and destroying their culture. Uh, so I think that uh, one of the things that comes up what happens with ABA is that uh, the power differential is always there. The ABA practitioner has only dealt with uh, an autistic child who's in a position of powerlessness. They've not, uh, I don't encounter ABA practitioners who have adult autistic friends and teachers. Yeah. And uh, I think that that's, you know, I, that, that, that tells me something uh, right right away there and so and it's it's people assume these power differentials really interestingly like uh uh you know in real um uh uh you know uh uh you know uh what was i gonna say well what's the example i was gonna say like uh when i walk into a classroom you know and i uh um, people don't initially, unless they're very perceptive, people don't read me as autistic, you know, I'm not far enough along in my gender transition process for people that are, you know, people read, people read me as male, people read me at, uh, uh, as non-autistic, you know, I walk into a classroom and people very often pick me out as the instructor mm-hmm. right away. But I know, um, especially young, uh, younger instructors who are women of color, especially, you know, uh, young uh, black, black cis women colleagues will sometimes walk into a classroom and nobody will figure out they're the instructor until they, they call the class to attention. And that's 
this power dynamic of how people stereotypes of who holds the social power. And I, I, that's, uh, um, you know, the, this idea that like autistic people are always the client or the patient rather than uh, the teacher or the peer or the equal, uh, the, I've, uh, I encounter people when I, you know, who know I'm a, they, you know, they come, uh, they're, they know me in the context of my teaching uh, about being autistic. They know I'm autistic. And when I tell them that I'm an Aikido teacher, which is much more central to what I do than teaching about autism, you know, much more long running. Uh, when I tell them I'm an Aikido teacher, they make this assumption that I teach Aikido to autistic people because they cannot imagine an autistic person in a position of wisdom and authority over non-autistic people. Mm -hmm. To them, the power dynamic always runs the other way. Now I have a few autistic students. The majority of my students are not autistic. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, the power dynamic is based on, you know, they're trying to learn Aikido and I've been teaching it for 40 years and that's, uh, uh, it has nothing to do with autistic or non-autistic, but there's people who can't make that shift around it. Just like I encounter students who, uh, you know, can't uh, can't learn from women instructors, you know, won't learn from women instructors because they've been raised with this sexism where they can't respect a woman's intelligence. And so there's this, uh, uh, those power dynamics keep showing up. And those are another form of, of, tension and limitation, another form of ego defense, uh, this attachment to learned power hierarchies. And that's another thing that we have to transcend in order to be able to make real connection, in order to be able to learn from each other. Uh, the power dynamics uh, prevent people from learning and prevent people from authentic connection and prevent people from that shape-shifting that lets them adapt to, oh, here's a new style of teaching, or here's a new, uh, a, a, a person coming from a place that I'm not familiar with, and I have to approach this with a certain new shape and a certain humility and ability to tolerate uncertainty and learn from it. And what I see, you know, so often it's just the opposite, that people respond to uh, anything outside of what they've already learned as a threat that has to be shut down. And that, you know, we see that manifest as fear of immigrants and transphobia. And uh, so it's, uh, the, I think that often in the field of transpersonal psychology, uh, we don't always make that connection and say, oh, this is, this is a transpersonal psychology issue too. This is, um, uh, it's almost like, uh, we have these little boxes, uh, that we put things in, you know, transpersonal psychology is this, this practice of ego transcendence, you know, these psychology practices that transcends the, the conventional ego. And over here we have like social justice work and prejudice, and that's like a separate thing. But it's not because I think that, you know, real, real social justice uh, comes about 
with these transformations, with these personal transformations that say, I'm, uh, I'm recognizing my prejudices and internalized social hierarchies as another limitation, another, uh, another thing that my ego has tr been trained to defend that I can let go of now. And so it becomes dealing with the other, dealing with like, oh, I, I don't understand this person's gender at all, or I don't understand the way that this person's experience works at all. Uh, that becomes another form of uncertainty that we can open to as a spiritual practice and learn not to have to defend our egos against. This is a great time to let the tribe know about the Gray Transforms website, graytransforms.com. This is a great place to go to to check out all the links to the podcast. It's a great place to support the podcast, to support the channel. You can get a Gray Transforms t-shirt with a transegoic gnosis symbol for transformation on the back. You can get a Gray Transforms bullet journal. This is a simple tool, but this is a tool for mastery. You can get stickers. You can get a Gray Transforms mug. So you can drink great tea in your Gray Transforms mug while you are taking notes in your Gray Transforms bullet journal while you are listening to high-level transformative conversations on the Gray Transforms podcast. So comment, like, share, subscribe, follow, and together this tribe is moving humanity forward. Let's get back to this conversation. Uh, I'm, I'm really understanding how integral the social dynamics are to all of your work. It, 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 is, it is clear that somebody, the, 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 like a, a model that I like to work with is the societal dominance hierarchy. And it's clear that somebody and the upper half of the societal dominance hierarchy without the awareness or just just the, these unconscious social hierarchical uh, things that are ingrained into them will will just find themselves unable to to see uh the value of being taught uh, from anything under that that sort mm -hmm. of definitive line on that hierarchical model and and then and then you're you're also missing that as as that pyramid is shaped, you're missing the greater majority of information. The greater majority of information is in this bigger area. This is the greater majority of social dynamics and people are are living in this greater area. Um, and so then then that that quote rings very true. the the those that are in power, uh, are you know are privileged to not need to know more they don't they don't need to know they don't need more information because they are they 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 are uh, i mean in, in in my opinion on the wrong side of the social hierarchy but <laughs> you, you you wouldn't want to be there if, because if it privileges you to know less well <laughs> knowing less is 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 not is, is not a uh it's not a proper function of of a fully actualized human being if you, mm -hmm. if you were to strive um to be the, uh, the best of what you could be yeah so uh it, i i and and then th that that same thing happens in the in the classrooms where 
um, you know, uh, it, it, like in these ABA trainings when there is no autistic person, um, you know, be able to be there to inform people um, that this is this is really uh, not the way that we are going to help uh, help encourage the best out of these people. And, um, and as you were, as the examples that you gave before, if I was going into a queer studies course and I am being taught, if I was being taught by white cisgendered men and these white cisgendered men are also the writers of the textbook of the queer studies, uh, it was like, where, where is the, how, how is this information accurate? Where, where is this information really coming from? And there's a lot of that same that same issue is weaved and in, in integral and running parallel to the the uh, like uh, Black American Studies, African American Studies, um, the, those sorts those sorts of courses where um, where you know when when we are in grade school, those textbooks are written uh, likely by white cisgendered men. And um, and then it, and then it paints this this strange picture that is quite obviously missing elements. It's quite obviously missing uh, missing key details in the and and they kind of, and and it's kind of brushed off and 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 it may, maybe in in very much a similar way that the uh, ABA practitioners find themselves advocating so strongly for their for that method uh when when they don't realize that that there's such a cru there's such crucial missing elements there um I, i'm also reminded of when when i was um uh when i was growing up from ages 17 to 21 i was in and out of jail uh twice a year i was just uh, i i i was in a lot of uh bad uh, bad environments with people doing things that were just not serving my best interests. I found myself in a substance abuse program. There was an outpatient program. I did this program twice. The very first time that I was in this program, I had already known a little bit about psychology. I had already known that this was the uh, direction of my life, that I was going to move in this direction. I, I was still very general. I, I didn't niche down. I wasn't narrow enough. I didn't I didn't know about transpersonal psychology. I didn't know about the, um, the more specifics of how I would be in the field. I just knew that this was kind of the direction that I was going to go in. And they... They brought up in this. Uh, I, I'm I'm more of an advocate of a harm reduction uh, model for for addiction, and uh, 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 but at that time I didn't even know that terminology. And in the program, they brought in in the in the uh, initial sessions, they they brought in uh, the the study of uh, of Pavlov. They they brought in the Pavlov studies, and they told us. They told me. They told others that um, if I ring a bell, then this is triggering a response of drooling. And, and that is the same uh, conditioned concept that um, the, the uh, addicts experience when it comes to substances. And I found myself very, uh, very immediately angry that, uh, that one would, one would attribute me uh, as a human being that they would they would put me and a dog uh, uh in in the same in the same sphere of 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 conditioned like my, my I, I there is there is some 
uh, reputable, like the, 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 the conditioning is a thing. It is, it is a, a concept that is valid. Um, however, the, the, the mechanisms and the psychology that goes into the conditioning of a human being with a very dynamic, uh, psychological profile in, in so many unique ways to the many billions of human beings on planet earth is not the same it is mm-hmm. much more complicated than than just the ringing of a bell and figuring out triggers uh it it it, it, it becomes a a whole uh a whole dynamic process to unravel the um the the bat the the maybe uh ineffective or the obstructing relation re, relational qualities that one might have to a substance or behaviors or the people or or all of these things and so i i found myself so angry initially uh at things like that and that is how i found uh, you know, my mother being a deaf woman in a hearing world when when she is uh, working at her job, they don't. They are not treating her um, uh, with the the sort of dignity uh, that that is uh, necessary for her. Just the basic dignity for her to do her job to uh, recognize. Uh, my my mom has been doing her job for many years, and and she ends up doing a lot of the work of other people, uh, but they but not getting the adequate credit for uh, for the value of the work that she does um, because of things like autism, because of this social hierarchy that is ingrained into people. And um, that, 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 that is, that is just, it's just, it's baffling. So, um, so thank you uh, for all, all that you articulated in that and, and, and made that very clear of how that is running so parallel and, and integral with the, the social dynamics. So you have uh, done a lot of work um, in, in informing people about this concept of neurodiversity. Um, can you, can you uh, unpack that a little bit? What is, what is neurodiversity? So neurodiversity is essentially the diversity among human body minds. So uh, the idea that different minds work different ways. So just as, you know, where the human species, you know, is culturally diverse and is diverse in terms of people are different heights, Uh, you know, there's diversity of size and height and diversity of skin color and diversity of culture and diversity of gender. Uh, We're also neurocognitively diverse, different minds uh, work differently. And there's, uh, you know, social dynamics around that, just as with any other form of diversity, we get, uh, you know, people set up, uh, we have this gender diversity in the species and people set up gender hierarchies, you know, patriarchy, and they set up uh, uh, social conventions about which genders are acceptable and which aren't. Oh, okay, there's, you know, the heteronormative male gender performance, which you have to do if you're assigned male at birth and the heteronormative female gender performance you have to do if you're assigned female at birth. And those are the two acceptable options. And uh, other options are are sinful or pathological or something like that. And the, the, same, the same dynamic, the same uh, uh, culturally constructed and uh, 
culturally imposed normativity happens around neurodiversity as well. So this idea there's one, one narrow range of uh, normal, there's one like right, normal, healthy way for uh, a mind to work. And uh, if one is not doing that normative performance, if one is not performing <coughs> neuronormativity, then uh, one is often pathologized for that. And we see that um, what I've been exploring lately around uh, neurodiversity is uh, something called uh, something I call neuroqueer theory, mm-hmm. which is extending queer theory into the realm of neurodiversity. So the idea uh, in queer theory, you know, that heteronormativity is, or cis heteronormativity, is uh, socially constructed and imposed on people. This idea that there's these, you know, uh, two binary gender roles, you get assigned a particular gender role at birth and that's the role that you're supposed to stay in and you have to perform it this way. And that performance includes uh, heterosexuality. So that that's imposed on everyone. The cis-heteronormativity is imposed on everyone and then its proponents and defenders claim that it's natural, but of course it was actually natural. It, they wouldn't have to do so much work to impose and enforce it. And so, uh, you know, cis heteronormativity can be queer people push back against it, subvert it, rebel against it, liberate themselves from it, learn not to internalize it, diverge from it. Neuronormativity can also be queered. And neuronormativity is very much entwined with cis heteronormativity. If you look at, um, to get back, you know, to go back to ABA, for instance, when uh, an ABA practitioner is trying to force an autistic child to do an imitation of a non autistic child, trying to force them, uh, force normativity on them. It's neuronormativity. You're supposed to move in a particular way and do your social connection and your thinking in a particular way and, uh, you know, to be normal as as they say, you know, so it's uh, this imposed neurotypicality, this imposed uh, uh, socially constructed uh, neuronormativity that's being passed off as if it were the one natural way for people to be and the only healthy way for people to think and act and move. And it's very much entwined with cis-heteronormativity that when an ABA practitioner is trying to impose uh, neuronormativity on a child, there it's always act like a normal non-autistic little straight boy or straight girl like they're never like don't worry we'll help your autistic child act like a healthy non-binary child it's always uh very entwined the performance that's being imposed on the child that are trying to con- condition the child to do is very much entwined with cis heteronormative performance mm-hmm. and so you know the 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 flip side of that is that neuronormativity and heteronormativity can be queered together, that one can sort of queer them both and liberate oneself from uh, uh, all of these different intersecting and interconnected forms of societally imposed normativity 
to be able to have more options. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that standard of normalcy, that uh, that that neural normativity, the standard of normalcy, the limited options that is that is right uh, based on some sort of uh, uh, abstract, uh, ambivalent, un- unknown unknown <laughs> unknown uh, choosing of what of what right behavior looks like. Um, except for except for as as influenced by uh, the the upper end of the societal dominance hierarchy um, is it, it, it's it's built into the language that is the very pathologizing paradigm of of the diagnostic statistical manual mm-hmm. and the, the things that are built into the more mainstream uh, psychotherapeutic uh, approaches. And so then you you get words that I have uh, I you know th- th- thankfully that I am uh, have been informed by 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 your teachings is the, this this word of spectrum and this this standard of normalcy that is that is identified and assumed by this word spectrum that somebody is. Um, of the autism spectrum disorder, and whenever whenever somebody says that oh, that they have a child or they they know somebody that is on the spectrum, I, I I I really encourage them not to use this word because it assumes that same standard of limited options. Um, can you can you say more about what you uh, believe is the um, the 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 some of the problems in the in the language of that pathology paradigm? Yeah, I think that um, we uh, when we assume that autism is uh, a pathology, when we approach it <laughs> as if it were a pathology, then we impose a limitation on what we understand as a culture and we impose a limitation on autistic people and it's a, another way of imposing a limitation on uh the the full range of human potential because if you say that a person you know has uh you know autism spectrum disorder and they have autism and they're uh uh it's a pathology or they're on you know there's this, or that there's this spectrum where like the closer to non-autistic you are, the better. Um, That, what that does is it erases uh, from our, from our conceptual vocabulary, it erases the possibility of autistic thriving. So if the only way for an autistic person to thrive is to be more like an autistic, more like a non-autistic person, then you've limited your options. You've limited options for the autistic person and for anyone who's working in, trying to work in their interest. So, hey, uh, uh, my experience as a, a thriving autistic person is autistic people don't thrive as imitations of non-autistic people. Autistic people don't thrive by trying not to be autistic. Autistic people thrive by finding how they're going to thrive as autistic people. And if so, if you say, uh, once you start pathologizing autism, you know, the idea of thriving as an autistic person is off the table. It's, uh, 
And so you see that affect professional practice. So therapists who are trained to view autism uh, through a lens of pathology are looking at how to alleviate autism as if they're alleviating symptoms of a disease. They're looking at autism in terms of symptoms and the fewer you know symptoms a person has, the closer they are to being not autistic, the healthier they are. If that's the goal, what's happening is that the autistic client is being uh, pushed to imitate a non-autistic person and taught that being closer to acting non-autistic is the only way that they can thrive, but it's actually not healthy for the autistic person. It's not healthy to live as an imitation of someone else for the sake of pleasing others. And it's just like, it would be like encouraging your gay clients to stay in the closet and to, to try to live as straight people. And these days we know that's unhealthy. You know, 50 years ago, that was what the profession of psychology did with gay people. And so that shifted and the same shift is needed with autistic people. And so I think we, it's crucial to get rid of the pathologizing language in order to uh, make us aware of the possibility of autistic thriving and that the way autistic people thrive is as autistic people. So I have a different approach. Uh, I have, Often I find myself in alignment with people, uh, you know, in alliance with people, especially in social justice work and such, um, <clears throat> where uh, my reasons are different from theirs, where actually there are deep disagreements in, in a way, but they don't necessarily matter. We're coming at the uh, same thing for different reasons. And so I don't like identity politics. I think it's another limitation on human potential. And I think the discourse on social justice has become extremely focused on identity politics. And we see it across the political spectrum because, uh, you know, there's there's the, the allegedly left-wing and progressive identity politics where everyone is fighting over who's, uh, you know, who's more marginalized and, uh, clinging to uh, their various oppressed identities. And uh, and then you see it, you know, on the right wing end of the political spectrum. I mean, white supremacism is the ultimate uh, identity politics. You know, nationalism, fascist nationalism is, is the ultimate in identity politics or uh, um, the idea that uh, we have to police people's gender identities and make sure that they stay with the one they were assigned at birth, you know? So that's, so identity politics has become like it defending and enforcing particular limitations of identity has become almost the chief uh, uh, political concern, like across the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. And it's <laughs> prevented it, it's, I think it prevents real progress towards any meaningful social justice or positive social transformation. It prevents us from having a strong labor movement because people are divided along all of these identity lines rather than forming uh, any sort of class solidarity or work, you know, worker solidarity. And it uh, it just keeps people 
again, it's about psychological defenses that people feel these uh, very reactively uh, just uh, defend their identity categories. Yeah. And so I'm not a fan of identity politics uh, because it does limit the human adaptability and the ability to make connections and form coalitions. And it eliminate it, 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 it places a limit on uh, uh, one, one sense of self. Mm-hmm. Places, oh, I, I have to keep performing this identity because this is my identity rather than recognizing that identities, because they're constructed, are fluid. They're culturally, ident- any identity category is culturally constructed. And we, we are culture. We are the culture. We shape the culture. And so we should be able to just uh, be fluid about our identities and what identity is working for me. So often I, uh, when I see people, um, you know, I see people uh, fighting against, you know, pathologizing language or, uh, uh, you know, being very, 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 being sticklers about language for reasons of identity politics. Mm-hmm. And I'm also a stickler about language, mm-hmm. but for different reasons. I'm thinking not in terms of like, what's the politically correct way to to uh, talk about this identity and this identity and this identity. I'm thinking what works for purposes of human thriving. Mm-hmm. And so my my reason, you know, so I'll say autistic people instead of, people with autism um, and saying autistic people is often referred to as identity first language as opposed to person first language, but it's not about identity for me. Mm-hmm. It's about, for me, it's about if you, if you use language, if you say, you know, person with autism, you're encouraging, you're framing it like a disease, like something someone has, and that uh, perpetuates the idea that autistic people can't thrive as autistic people. And when you say autistic people, when you're willing to say the word autistic as if, you know, and without like this, this stigma around it, then you're saying, okay, this is another trait that the person has at, that which they can learn to thrive with. They can learn to uh, how, oh, if I'm an autistic person, that means I have to think about what it means to thrive as an autistic person, what works for me. And so I'm very into the utilitarian approach to language of what framings of the situation, what framings of this phenomena, of this reality are going to allow us to approach it in a way that uh, fosters liberation and human thriving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I really resonate with the, the concept of, of, of what, what is the utility of the language that is being used to encourage the thriving of the individual? I, I really resonate with the, um, I'm, I'm not a fan of identity politics uh, at, at all. I, 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 I think, I think uh, uh, another thing I'm, I'm realizing that I resonate with you about, about you, that something about you that I resonate with 
is that uh, is that as you had mentioned before, when you are walking into a classroom, uh, maybe people can identify you as the instructor of the classroom, but they cannot identify the pronouns that you use, she and her. They cannot, pro they cannot identify the autism. They cannot uh, uh, identify the other uh, qualities of identity that you, uh, that you, uh, that you, find uh, a a relationship to that works for you uh, a relationship to that that is thriving for you i i the the i i have a unique uh, diversity in this deaf culture and that has that has always um been presented to me in 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 strange ways that um that uh, I, I it's just not something that can be seen on my skin it's not something mm -hmm. that can be seen uh, just by looking at me that, uh, that 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 is a part of my culture and people are always so surprised and uh, and and sometimes uh, the the defenses against m my my interaction with them my uh, the defenses against the engagement with me um, sometimes those defenses are lowered when they are finding out that that that, <laughs> that is also a part of the story but but all of us so many of us have a a, a story of neurodiversity of, of uh, a, a diverse experience of identity and culture um, and, and things like this that cannot just be seen that is not always so uh, apparent and 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 it really aligns also to just my namesake and my my narrative around gray and this mm. podcast is called gray transforms and so I've never I've I've, I've always uh, uh, believed in the integrating. Uh, maybe for for very much the same reason. So what what is the utility of this? What what it, what is the what, what you know what what are we what are we after here when we are battling over um what what what, what which language is the right language or uh or, or or sometimes the 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 debates the conversations debates and arguments get really fuzzy they get really confusing for for what to what end to what to what purpose is this serving the the thriving of the individual the actualization of an individual um to be their best selves and and how they want to be um be interact engaged with in the world um it, it becomes it becomes really really strange really funky but uh that uh that 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 the 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 gray the the kind of the weaving it all together uh that that seems to be um that 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 seems to be what would be the best way in in my mind when when, when i think of this i think of also the um academic writing the the when when i see that there there when 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 scholars young scholars uh you, you, typically the audience here is going to be uh young scholars uh interested in transpersonal psychology um and other very intelligent people are, are going to be coming across um this sort of podcast platform uh this great transforms and so they, they might recognize that all the language often is uh, assuming and defaulting to the masculine pronoun. And because it defaults to the masculine pronoun of he and him, then you have these unconscious patriarchal dynamics that get that get weaved into the writing and 
and it and it and it takes away something uh so profound so important and that is also the feminine that resides in us all and that we are all born of we are all born of the feminine and somehow in the writing it get, it gets lost in the in the transmission of knowledge then because of this defaulting to a masculine pronoun there's a control and a societal a societal hierarchical dominance and power struggle o- over that but when i have come across um better writing the the uh better writing um is often defaulting to a feminine pronoun or um is 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 switching back and forth using a bit of both is it it, it seems to be uh, more effective it, it, it's it's now speaking to more of the human experience and um this is this is a really beautiful uh, conversation. I, I, I'm I'm so impressed by how how well you articulate all of these things and um, and how much information is is now is now archived in in this in our little conversation here. It's so awesome. I can't wait for uh, more people to to get a chance to uh, to view this and 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 see our our mm-hmm. conversation here. Um, but uh, you, you're you're also doing a lot of really cool other things as well. So you you have a you have an, a web comic uh, called Weird Luck. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you? Uh, I, I I remember um, before the conversation started, I had mentioned that um, uh, some years ago I had uh, I had met with you when you were um, doing a, a small workshop around neurodiversity at CIAS at California Institute of Integral Studies. Um, we had dinner after with, with a group of people, and um, that was the the first time that I heard that you were beginning this publishing company, and um, and then now it, it has this web series, this web comic, weird luck uh, involved as well how did that begin for you how's that going um what can you tell us about all of those cool things uh, okay well this actually um well i do i'm managing editor one of the managing editors but an indie worker-owned publishing house called autonomous press and uh so that's that's a thing that's happening uh and, and we're kind of uh, gradually, you know, it's a small, small worker-owned press. We're just kind of doing it as a labor of love, put a few books out a year, and uh, a lot of like queer speculative fiction. And just we're 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 always we're looking to kind of expand, like what what books uh, expand consciousness in various ways. What is it that like pushes the pushes the boundaries of normativity and expands people's horizons and so sometimes that's nonfiction, sometimes that's fiction but uh you know we have this uh uh, uh annual anthology called the spoon knife anthology that's uh is multi-genre kind of genre defying anthology of uh it's, it's very difficult to define it's just sort of stories we regard as neuroqueer stories that somehow uh subvert normativity and it's each volume is very different but we're uh, we're about to put out volume seven so that's uh it's got a pretty long run now as uh and it's still going you know i'm i'm collect accepting submissions for volume eight right now we have different editors different team of editors for each volume i've been you know on the editorial team for 
uh, a few now, and I'm going to do it again for volume eight. And uh, it's just really fun to help uh, get people's creative work out there and spread good stories. But let's talk about weird luck because that actually uh, ties in with the transpersonal topic yeah. here. It actually originated. Um, my dear friend, Andrew Reichart, uh, uh, I've been friends with him uh, since uh, we were in high school and uh, we're both writers and uh, we started co-writing stories and just collaborating on on uh, wild speculative fiction stories when we were still in high school and uh, that the stories got very shaped by our early transpersonal experiences and especially our our uh work with psychedelics early on and uh, the one of the things we were playing with when we were teenagers uh doing a lot of psychedelics was uh uh, there were a couple of things. One was the the you know the Jungian con- conception of synchronicity, and how sometimes when we were doing a lot of psychedelics, like pattern and synchronicity would become amplified, and so that was that was one thing. And then another thing was the way that you know on uh, psychedelics, if one is moving around like going between indoors and outdoors or passing between different spaces or between different rooms, it's almost like you're passing into a whole other universe. It's like you pass into a whole other universe when you do psychedelics, but that experience of like, here I am sitting in the living room and I get up and go to the bathroom and passing through the door to the bathroom where the lighting is different. Like it's like I've stepped into an entirely different universe now. And (laughs) so the, uh, uh that those those elements that passing between different realities and the the synchronicity and pattern thing those came to really inform our fiction and this concept of weird luck was how we talked about uh pattern and synchronicity you had this term you know okay we're having we're having you know we've done acid and here we are like romping around the town on acid and we're having this this bout of weird luck where these strange coincidences keep uh coming that seem very loaded with meaning in the psychedelic state and so we started uh calling our we're both writing stories sometimes collaborating and sometimes just writing independently and we start calling the collective body of work the weird luck saga and it's got all these different characters that interweave and recur and uh you know are show up at various points in our lives and various stories uh we didn't start publishing until we were in our 40s we didn't start actually publishing our stories and then uh andrew self-published a trilogy of novels which uh are actually in the coming year are going to be re-released uh in in revised editions and (laughs) um and i started just uh sort of toward the end of my doctoral studies, uh, finally getting some uh, 
getting some short stories and uh, you know sort of mini you know novelettes uh, uh, published, putting them into writing. You know, do using the spoon knife anthology to get some of those out into the world, and so we started publishing more of that stuff. And um, we both always loved comics didn't really have time to learn to draw well enough. You know, neither of our skills were up to the, we both draw, but neither of us had the art skills that were quite up to the task of doing the comic we wanted to do. But we found um, uh, our friend, Mike Benowitz is an extraordinary artist. And he got very interested in uh, our work and the sort of the, the fictional world we were creating. And so we ended up collaborating on this weird luck comic which is right now uh, a web comic so publish uh you know a page a page a week with gaps you know would periodically we have to do because it takes we have to take a, a, a long break sometimes because it uh, takes uh more than a week to do a page because mike's art is very elaborate and spectacular and so uh, it's a webcomic first, and each time we finish a volume, we'll put out in paperback, but we're still on the first volume yet so far, so that hasn't uh, happened yet. So we're just sort of, we've got four chapters on, uh, the website is weirdluck.net, and there's four chapters, and we've been running some old material during this long break between chapter four and chapter five, because uh, the complexity of the story and uh, Mike's art have both made a big leap. And so there's sort of this transitional period as we create uh, this new chapter. So chapter five will launch sometime this spring and I'm really looking forward to uh, to that. And yeah, it's just, an, it's my favorite project that I do. And it's a uh, you know, three-way collaboration, me and Andrew uh, and, and Mike and... Uh, it's a really long epic story that we're just at the beginning of. I think we've picked up some, some dedicated readers already, but I think uh, very few of our readers have a sense of just uh, how, how long an epic story they're into and how involved it's going to get, but uh, they'll, they'll see, they'll start, they'll start finding out pretty soon. Yes. That, that's awesome. It, it reminds me of a, one of my favorite anime series is one piece and one piece happens very slowly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, 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 you get like a 20 minute episode every Saturday sometimes. And then uh, it just ha happens so slowly, but it's this like very drawn out epic story and the, and the narrative is so, so well written. And I, I just love hearing about your creative endeavors. I, I love hearing about uh, transpersonal scholars, you're you're so articulate, so well uh, spoken in all of the concepts of neurodiversity and psycho uh, psychotherapy and transpersonal approaches and somatic psychology and and all of the all of the academic things that you do. And you're an instructor and an Aikido teacher, and then you 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 do the the web uh, series as well, that creative things, and and you have a family and you're you're doing all of, all of these things. How do you 
how do you manage to uh, get your hands involved in all of these buckets? Is there is there some some sort of tips that you would encourage uh, young transpersonal scholars that are going into uh, being a professional outside of outside of the outside of their graduate school? Um, what 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 would you encourage for, uh, for somebody to, that that wants to that wants to spread their wings, wants to spread their branches, to do the many to to satisfy the many interests that, that we all seem to have. I would say, and I, I want to say, like, I don't feel that I'm doing a very good job of satisfying my many interests because I have so many interests and so many things I want to do and stories I want to tell and books I want to write. And I've, I've done so little of it, uh, even though it looks like I'm doing a lot compared to uh, what my intentions are. I've done very little, but I would say. Um, I know the feeling. Yeah. Do, do what feeds you do what uh, do what feeds you and gives you energy and gives you life. Cause that's, you know, like, it's like, okay, the weird luck webcomic. It's like, that's a project that takes time, but it's so energizing to be doing it that it gives me more energy for the other projects rather than taking away from it. So I look and I cut things out if they're if they're draining me instead of feeding me. I look for things, you know, oh, this is not serving me at all. You know, uh, um, I mean, I live like a, a almost a monk like existence a lot of the time, you know, I. I uh, uh, I, you know, I live a, a healthy lifestyle and I, uh, you know, I don't drink alcohol at all. And so there's this, uh, um, there's this way I have, of, you know, work keeping my energy up just through uh, a healthy living and focus of uh, uh, on what I do and really looking for what feeds me. Uh, you know, that I have a, a marriage that feeds and energizes me. You know, I have the friends and the conversations that feed and energize me and the creative projects that feed and energize me. And then all of these uh, things I'm doing support each other, I think. That's crucial uh, um, in the sense of uh, their interrelations are not always obvious. And I think that throws people off. People, you know, people assume my Aikido teaching has have something to do with, you know, the neurodiversity work and it doesn't, you know, and people assume, you know, that the comic must be about like this other work that I do. And it's, it's not exactly, but they do form each other. Like there's definitely, there's queer themes that show up in the comic for sure, you know, and there's, uh, uh, these those these themes of transformation, these psychedelic themes that show up there, and so, uh, and I'm constantly revising as well, and that's crucial. Um, like the the neurodiversity work, you know, the work around autism in particular has kind of stopped feeding me. It's become a bit of a drain uh, after I, you know, and I've 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 uh, it's been big a big piece of my career for a while. But I'm actually starting to make a transition. Here's something that uh, uh, you probably haven't heard yet. It's brand new news, but I'm actually going back to uh, school in the fall to get an MFA in writing because I'm going to make a transition over the course of the next several years from teaching on psychology and neurodiversity stuff to teaching creative writing. Beautiful. So I'm bringing 
this like, okay, the creative projects are feeding me the most. So I want to bring my teaching more into alignment with that. So that constant modification and adaptation and avoiding getting stuck in a box is a big part of it. Um, The, uh, um, I think I was looking for a long time. I made the mistake of thinking that I had to do stuff uh, in a particular, like, like I had to, I had to do, uh, I had to find a career or something. I had to find what I wanted to do. You know, that what do you want to be when you grow up question? And I, I didn't do anything meaningful for a long time. I kept teaching Aikido, but I didn't do anything meaningful for a long time because I couldn't find the thing, but there's not the thing for me. I just want to follow the flow of my interest and curiosity. And I end up producing a lot of very interesting things in the process. Um, And uh, I think that that's key. Like I would say pick, you know, five interests and pursue them all at once and start looking for what the common themes are and how they connect to each other and start looking for are any of them a drain or are they all feeding you and they don't have to make sense as a single body of work at any point as long as they're all feeding you and somehow part of your flow towards who you want to be in the world well, that that is awesome advice. I love that. I, I love finding the, the, the encouragement for people to do the things that feed them most, that not, not the things that are draining them. Get rid of the things that are draining you as much as you can and, and move towards those, those five key things or, or whatever those key interests are for you. Find out where they are weaved together. Find out their parallels, but find out the, the things that are feeding your soul, feeding your mind, feeding your body. Um, so that you can be uh, a, a fully energized functioning person in the world and continue to uh, be generative in all the ways that you want to and, and satisfy all of those interests. Uh, I I love this conversation that we ha- we've had, and I am am fully fed by this conversation, fully fed by this by this uh, interaction. This is a, a a full circle moment. It's really amazing to me. Thank you so much for, oh, thank you. Uh, for being a, a part of it. It's been a delight. It's been, yeah, absolutely wonderful to get this chance to speak with you. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I, I, I know that other people will be fed by this conversation as well um, for many years to come, I hope. And so I uh, hope that they will share it with others, share it with some ABA practitioners, <laughs> share, it with, uh, share it with some other transpersonal folk. And um, uh, thank you so much. So oh, um, neuroqueer.com. And did you say it was weirdluck.com was the comment? Uh, weird, weirdluck.net weirdluck.net neuroqueer.com yep but yep. that's right yeah yeah and, and so uh you, you you can find all of dr nick walker's uh work and all that she is doing um moving forward uh along those websites along those things and i can't wait to see more of the of the mastery and fine arts and uh, more of that writing um it's uh it's it's gonna be great it's it's great to call you a comrade it's great to call you a friend uh thank you dr nick walker i really appreciate it thank you thank you mr gray it has been a great pleasure look forward to next time we get to speak
Absolutely. Bye-bye. That was a great conversation with Dr. Nick Walker. She was my first transpersonal teacher. She was my first advisor. 10 years ago, she was encouraging me to follow the flow of my interest to be in the field of transpersonal psychology and be everything that I am today. She is phenomenal. So much value in that conversation. It was more than autism and neurodiversity and identity politics and societal dynamics. It was all of that and more. It was the humanness in humanity. So comment, like, share, subscribe, give it a thumbs up, put it in your watch later if you don't have enough time to watch now, but watch that full video. There is so much value there. And together we are moving humanity forward. Check out these conversations that I'm having with thought leaders and transformative specialists all the time.